science, it gives you this ability to say, yeah, this is how things really are. In an age of pandemics and disinformation, the future may seem more than a little bleak. But there is truth and beauty to be found in the natural world. This is Nobel Prize Conversations, and you just heard 2009 Medicine Laureate Elizabeth Blackburn, biologist and professor emerita at University of California, San Francisco. She was awarded the prize together with Carol Grider, who was her doctoral student at UC Berkeley in the 1980s, and Jack Shostak of Harvard Medical School, for the discovery of how chromosomes are protected by telomeres. This field of research has recently been linked to the efforts to uncover the secrets of ageing. Elizabeth Blackburn is an outspoken advocate of basic science, scientific research without a particular use in mind, but with the potential to create great benefit to humankind, such as the discoveries that led to the development of desperately needed COVID vaccines. The vaccines did not happen overnight. They happened based on decades of really solid research from all sorts of contributing areas. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Zeit Stiftung. This conversation between two old friends focuses on the future, the threat of climate change and alternative facts on policy and legacy, but also on Elizabeth Blackburn's unwavering ability to see the beauty in science. First, she takes us with her on a journey to Antarctica, the last trip she took before the lockdowns began, and, as it turns out, a biologist's dream. I'd never been there. I just thought, hey, we have to go there. And it was uh, in the middle of summer, so you could see a lot of wildlife and, you know, whales, and oh, it was wonderful. Very sobering, because, you know, you kept thinking about climate change. Of course, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. Was it as you imagined it would would be? Yes, and I hadn't really thought so much about the wildlife. That was astounding. The really unexpected thing was um, in the ocean. Now, you know, we, we were on the shore, but there are all these fascinating, you know, invertebrates that you can pick up and see, um, you know, sort of soft and squishy and all sorts of different forms. I don't remember their names, but it's very, very rich, you know, in that life. We think of krill, but it also turns yes. out that divers go down and they see this beautiful, you know, I don't know, sea star, brittle star, all these kinds of fascinating creatures. So you just don't think of Antarctica as having that. It's one thing to have, you know, done in one's life to see Antarctica. And of course, the icebergs are just, you know, amazing and the glaciers and so forth. It's really, really extraordinary. But when one sees images, yes, we do see a barren white wasteland. Oh, far from it. It's very, very rich in orcas and all sorts of, you know, amazing leopard seals and orcas that in concert work as a group to rock the ice flows. They bound up and down in the water somehow and they we didn't see this but we saw them hunting the orcas these are you know killer whales right and they will make waves so that the iceberg tips and tips and finally the seals slide off and they eat them <laughs> you know this is very cooperative intelligent behavior <laughs> you might say by these orcas amazing so i learned a lot 
did you feel you belonged? Did you feel, you know, given the, what humanity is doing to... No, no, I felt very, we felt very guilty. You know, we went in a very sort of nature and um, environmentally um, conscious organisation. And we're very, you know, you have to be super careful. I mean, every time we got off onto a shore visit, we all, and in fact, even when we went in little boats, we would all have to sort of disinfect our boots both on and off. Uh, you know, just to make sure that you, we weren't carrying anything into yes, this environment. Course. But you could see, you know, it's fragile. There were glaciers breaking off in uh, truly sobering ways. Talk about harbingers to the future, which I think is going to be our topic today. Quite so, yes. I just wondered if you just always known that you were going to be a scientist. Well, I knew I liked it. Um, you know, there was a time when I was, uh, I'd learned piano starting from about, you know, second grade and, and kept learning all through high school. And, uh, and, and I really liked music and liked the piano. And I remember at some point I thought, wouldn't it be great just to be able to play the piano, you know, and that would be your life. And luckily I realised I was nearly, not nearly good enough, you know. Yeah, so, so I liked science, you know, from, I liked really biology. And I think that's what got me totally hooked. And, you know, I, I kind of liked the, the problems of chemistry, uh, Mathematics took me much longer to get my head around, even though, you know, I had okay teachers, but it didn't capture me like, like biology did. And then chemistry started to capture me because it was all about molecules and molecules in life. That really captivated me as a teenager, actually. I mean, it might seem obvious to you that science should be fascinating, and if you're a Nobel laureate in science, of course it's fascinating. But... I think it really comes over talking to you, and we've done so many times over the years, that just the science keeps coming back. You are really engaged in it. You want to talk about it all yes. the time. It, it, in a way, you, you sort of can't put it away. It just always comes back. <laughs> That's right. And, and, you know, I feel it's, it's, it's very lucky to, to be able to have that because, you know, for, first of all, Following what you do in your own science, and then what you do, what you read about, and so forth, is is always fascinating. You know, I mean, the COVID nineteen thing has just unleashed in me. You know, here I am sitting at home much of the time because of lockdowns, and you know, but I go through all the data sets. I look at look at the access tests. You know, and look at all the things that you can see by quantifying all these kinds of phenomena that are going on. Just being able to approach it that way is, is very empowering, I think, to be able to say, look, actually, I'm looking at the US excess deaths from all the CDC data, and I can see that there are way, way more excess deaths in these months, you know, than are accounted for by the official COVID counts. So those sorts of things, it's like, yeah, science really gives you a, a grip on reality because it's quantifiable and, you know, you take... Uh, reliable numbers, which, you know, the CDC collects all of the deaths every week from every state, and the states all report deaths regardless of cause. So you just look statistically 
across all the previous years. And then you look at these huge spikes and you say, wow, I don't think there's any other explanation for this excepting the pandemic. And and so then you got these real numbers. So this is just one example. I think science, you know, it, it gives you this ability to say, yeah, this is how things really are. That's fascinating. But then on top of that, um, so in the most recent thing we did together, you came back and said what you wanted to talk about regarding the value of science was the beauty and wonder of science. Yes, yes, yeah. And that was very striking. And that obviously also fires you up. I think so. And again, it it comes back to biology. You know, you look at living things and they're just extraordinarily beautiful. For example, I'm on the board of trustees as a science trustee for something called the California Academy of Sciences, which has a huge mission now of really, you know, trying to save biodiversity and the planet and beautiful environments. And so, for example, you know, the aesthetics of what you discover under the ocean, hundreds of feet down, you know, well below the photosynthesis zones are all these beautiful sea creatures that are, you know, just gorgeous colours and so forth. I mean, there's something so aesthetic about biology. And I think in the molecular biology aspect, you know, people always were struck by how the double helix was so aesthetic, right? And it was very elegant. So I think I'm lucky. I, I like these sorts of things that are beautiful about about science itself yes. and the objects in science, you know, the galaxies, you know, the Hubble images. Oh, I mean, you know, they, they really speak to people, right, because they are aesthetically beautiful things. You just look at these things and, you know, and then you pair those images of galaxies taken with the Hubble imagery and so forth, you know, and all the colours and so forth. And then you pair that with the, wow, let's think about the origin of the universe. You know, so so there's so many ways that, you know, that's not, that's just science observing. It's not doing science. It's just looking at the objects that science informs us about. But pairing that with, you know, knowing how old the universe is, is fascinating. And then you start to say, well, actually, they don't really know. You know, there are these huge discussions about, you know, is it something like 14 billion or 13 billion? <laughs> you know, that's, so a billion years of difference somewhere in that range. You know, that's a pretty big difference. That's a pretty big error bar, right? <laughs> and we still don't know, I think. I think there's two sides to that debate is what I was able to gather from from that. So, you know, just the sheer wonder of of this, you know, inconceivable period of time. Indeed. There's an accessible wonder, images from space telescopes and, 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 and nature in the oceans. And then there's the the wonder that's accessible only to those who do the experiments, the sort of inside wonder of science, which you're seeing when you do your molecular biology. Yes, yes, right, right. No, there is something amazing. Uh, I had an advisor who advised me for my master's degree in Melbourne, because when I went to Cambridge to do a PhD, they said, well, you have to have a year of experience uh, if you come from the colonies. Australia was a colony. You had to have a year of experience doing research before you were allowed to join the august um, (laughs) cohort of Cambridge PhD uh, students. So in order to do that, I did a master's degree in something that, you know, it wasn't all that interesting. It was a biochemical analysis of how amino acids are metabolized in rats, of all things, right? And and we would do lots of, you know, 
curves, kinetics curves and stuff. But it really taught me about science because this advisor was a very interesting fellow. He's no longer alive. Frank Hurd was his name. And he said, every experiment that you do, you should set it up and you should think of it as a small, as a Mozart sonatina. Whoa, you know, (laughs) but you know, what he was saying was the way you even do science, the way you even set it up is it should have a sort of intrinsic uh, beauty to it. And what he meant was that he meant, you know, how it was designed and was it was it well done. Such an interesting uh, aspect. It's absolutely beautiful. I mean, of a Monday morning when you sort of get your rat and need to sacrifice it in order to do your experiment. Which, which, which I was so scared, I could never sacrifice a rat. I'm sorry to say that we had a, a young assistant, a lab assistant, who was a, a farm boy from, you know, a small um, township in Victoria, Australia. And, and he lived on a farm and he was used to the tougher things of life. So he got that job, which was done in a very humane way, but I couldn't bear. I, I mean, I still can't. I'm a real <laughs> wimp winner. So I couldn't bear to do that part of it. So that was done. And then the experiment would proceed in this, you know, sort of less personal, shall we say, fashion. <laughs> Elizabeth Blackburn has taken stock during the pandemic. After being confined to her home for a year and a half, she's decided to give up most of her travelling for the sake of the planet and she hopes more scientists will follow her example. She's also devoted herself to a cause close to her heart, ethics in science. It's given me time to think about something that I was interested in, and that's really trying to think about, you know, what what should be a kind of way that scientists conduct themselves. In the last uh, about three years, something called some guidelines for scientists started to develop and it developed through a conference where Nobel laureates get together with uh, hundreds of young scientists from just all over the world for a week. And so we started to call these things Lindau because that's the location of where these meetings have happened. Lindau guidelines. And they're really basically, you know, 10 points for how should you be as a scientist? So not to go into them in detail, but just things that all of us take for granted, but somehow it's all by osmosis and never really stated. So I won't go into the detail, but you could just say, you know, think of it as a Hippocratic Oath for scientists. And the medical profession had, and I hope still has, some trust in it because there's this sort of understanding that there is in the profession, everybody in that profession takes this Hippocratic Oath to to not do harm, right? And so there's nothing written for scientists, but... If you wrote the same sorts of things down in terms of the important things in science, they do all add up to, well, don't do harm. They're also much more positive about, um, you know, all all of the important things of, uh, you know, respecting truth and and all sorts of things like that. But uh, that's something that I got really interested in. And um, with the help from the Lindau Nobel Laureates Meetings Foundation, people really got this inner form online, we're hoping to get, I think we've got, you know, at least 40 signatures of Nobel laureates right now for the upcoming meeting that's coming sadly online. That's something I've really been thinking about because the trust in science, so that's the big reset. We have seen the consequences of lack of trust in science and the climate uh, change, now climate crisis, you know, that has suffered enormously from lack of trust in science. 
And so a big issue is, well, why should people trust scientists? So if, if it's known and understood that scientists do behave as a profession in, in certain ways, that's something that if I were a member of the public, I would feel more inclined to, uh, <laughs> to trust, you know, what scientists do, which is, is science. I'm hoping by various ways that will be the sorts of things that can contribute to how trust in science and therefore better utilization of science can be made much more widely based, not just in scientists. So it seems it seems a very good time for these guidelines. The world the world's attention has been switched to science by the pandemic. Yes, yes, and the pandemic has shown. Yes, you can you know the build out of science into vaccines, because the vaccines did not happen overnight. They happened based on decades of really solid research from all sorts of, you know, contributing areas, right? And so then this has been, you know, terrific demonstration to those who want to see of the value of vaccines. You know, that's the question for those who don't want to see it. What's going on there? We need to understand that a whole lot better. And I think that has led us into this other huge thing coming out of the pandemic, which was always there, which is, you know, inequality and, you know, injustices to some groups, particularly racial, but to lots of other, you know, marginalised uh, groups as well. So I think that's been this other thing that's so important. And it all ties in to these guidelines for science as well, of course. Yes, the, focusing on on the marvelously fast and efficient production of vaccines based on decades of research. I mean, I remember you, you've said often when we've been speaking to people that science looks very inefficient when viewed from the outside, basic science. But in fact, of course, it needs to be like that. How, how secure do you feel that people will accept the continued funding of basic research and its inefficiencies after they've seen the marvellous speed with which vaccines can be produced? Is there suddenly now an expectation among people around the world, do you think, that science can do things like that? Well, as I say, it's somewhat of an illusion because all the pieces, you know, were in place and it was a matter of putting them together and synthesising them into uh, the vaccine, you know, all the way from understanding that the lipids could act as adjuvants, the lipids that package some of these virus, um, some of these um, vaccines, and of course, understanding how the genetic code works and how particularly, you know, mammalian cells in particular will use the genetic information in messenger RNAs. So all of that was decades of, of work. Um, yeah, and so what we've seen is sort of the, the you know, the, the little last steps. Um, so, so am I confident that the message gets across that, no, this didn't happen just because people just set their minds to it and some money was thrown at the problem. It was, it was a big investment. So, but this is a matter of communication uh, and, you know, explaining how science works. But... It's it's also interesting because, you know, people have all these complex belief systems. And, and I think what we've seen so clearly is that you can explain your head off and still people do think the way they do. It's so interesting to try to understand us as humans because, you know, we're, we're pretty weird. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
<laughs> when you think about it, we do so many things that seem counter to our interests, and that doesn't seem to be the best evolutionary <laughs> solution. And and so understanding this and 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 not dismissing it, um, but really saying this is worthy of knowing. This, I sort of come to this, not just beat people over the head with you know you've got to understand science the way we do it, but to really say, yeah. What's going on in these heads that we have? You know, these three pounds of incredible neurons that are producing these extraordinary, um, sometimes very rich and valuable, I have to say, views of the world. You know, a lot of people get by, don't they, without knowing science very well or understanding yeah. complex in information. And so I've more and more said to myself, uh, you know, don't think of it as like, well, they don't understand the science, but more well, what is happening? And can I understand it? And I might not like it, but it's worthy of understanding. It sounds absolutely the right approach, because, yes, the the standard approach is to be perhaps a little, well, not dismissive, it's engaging, but it's to say they have to understand the science. This sounds as if you're engaging with society on a more realistic basis, which is that not everybody's going to understand it, but we need to understand them and their thinking and what is going on in society generally. Well, and, and more sort of the biological, what is going on in this human head, you know, because yeah. we're the product of some very, very, you know, extensive evolutionary procedures that have gone on and has produced this great diversity of humans. And, you, you know, it's, it's, it's at a very human level as well. Sometimes I think of California, there's sort of two Californias. There's more the coastal one than then the inland one. And the inland one is more reflective of a lot of the central part of America, let's say. So, you know, we go up, we spend time in the foothills of the Sierras, and that would be that more of that society. Um, and, and there are people, you know, who fly Trump flags and do stuff like that, that, you know, my, my um, coastal California mind just sort of, rebels against. And yet these are salt of the earth people, they're neighbours, they're terrific people, you know, and so so you can't just sort of throw them out the window, right? You know, they look out for us, we have a little weekend place we go up to, they, they look out for, you know, they, 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 you know, so I can't just sort of say, oh, you know, I'm going to dismiss these people, they're not worthy. You know, there'll be anti-vaxxers among them. And, you know, and friends of mine who have anti-vaxxer um, relatives, you know, grapple with this because they love their relatives, but they can't get inside their heads about what led them into this. And Alan Alder, who's a fabulous science communicator, I heard him give a little um, Zoom, what do you call it, a Zoominar, a webinar. You know, the way, you know, he's learned to do it is he asks people the story of how they got to where they were thinking. He said that's hmm. how he communicates and, and and then gave an example or two of some of very interesting pathways of some, you know, individuals who, where they came from and how they got there. It sounds like he's taken just the right approach by taking people seriously. It's not just dismissive, it's finding out why. Well, and it's also, that. it's sort of, I think there's plenty of data that say you give people lots of explanations and, and that's not cutting, it doesn't work, right? Mm. So, you know, isn't madness defined as you just keep doing the same thing over and over again and it fails? So, you know, we don't want to be mad, right? We don't want to be insane. We want to actually, you know, something that hasn't worked over and over again, well, try something different. And so that's what struck me 
in what he was saying, that he said, well, you try something different. Because he understood from a lot of experience of trying to talk with people about science that this whole idea that, yes, if you just explained it, then they would understand and suddenly they would see it all. It doesn't work. And so people's belief systems are what you have to get inside and try and understand what's going on. Always engaging in a wider world of ideas, Elizabeth Blackburn hasn't been afraid to step away from academia to interact with other parts of society. Between 2002 and 2004, she served on George W. Bush's Council on Bioethics, from which she was famously dismissed when she stood up for science in the face of political pressure. Now her advocacy has an added urgency. She has a real fear of what might happen to humanity if things don't change. I worry constantly about the future and and, uh, and and maybe when you get older, you know, you always say, well, you know, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. But but I think we have some pretty objective worries here. We're an immensely overpopulated planet and... Uh, uh, the only thing I see good is that I see birth rates are falling all over the place and people are moaning and groaning about it. And I'm saying this is really good for the planet. If we can do it in a way that people, you know, who want to have families and so on, you know, are still fulfilled and so forth. Uh, but still, wouldn't it be good if we lessened the burden of humans on the planet? This 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 might actually help. And I hope it can happen in a gradual and sort of, um, you know, making your choices way and not through horrendous sorts of tragedies which might very well happen if climate change is truly unleashed in the way it looks like it's going to be. So, yes, I worry a lot. But that there are some good trends and, you know, the good trends are that there is much more of, I think, this awareness that we have done such injustices uh, to so many groups of people and, you know, even though this is really coming to the fore in, in certain ways that might not last, each bit counts and sort of adds up. So I'm hoping that we, we end up, you know, taking all of this in in ways that we mightn't have done before the pandemic. Occasionally, you've stepped out into very public facing roles um, on the President's Bioethics Council, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, yes. What now? A couple of two decades ago. And... Um, then more recently in the presidency of the Salk. Yes. Uh, it's quite bruising to sort of really put yourself in society and to try and represent science in that way. You have to make certain personal sacrifices in order to do this. Well, I think, that, you know, in both of those instances where I stepped out of my, you know, normal profession of being a, a scientific researcher in an academic institution, right, purely that... It's really, it's because I, I, you know, really think science is important and I believe in science and particularly in the value of doing research that we call basic research, um, which can lead to very useful goal-driven research, witness the vaccine for coronavirus. But, but you know, just this whole idea of this, this human enterprise that I think is incredibly valuable. And so in the case of the president's Council on Bioethics, which was called in a very political way. Uh, you know, there was no question that this was going to be divorced from politics. But part of it was, well, this is something that you do need to approach by honestly doing science and assessing evidence. 
And uh, it was all mixed up with a milieu then of a, a distrust because there was a lack of trust in whether that administration was presenting evidence to, you know, the public that informed public policy. There were things, not just climate change and not just, you know, weapons of mass destruction, but there were things where reports were being altered about pollution, you know, really harmful pollution like arsenic and so forth. So things were being changed by that administration from bodies whose job was to advise on, you know, scientific matters. So I felt that it was really important that science be heard in this debate, which was then on the issue of um, partly stem cells, but it also it, it spilled over into other kinds of areas about aging and other sorts of things. And, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric around these subjects. And so I thought, well, I can provide a good science perspective on this. I also, for the stem cells, which was the hotter item at that moment, I didn't have any you know, horses in the race, right? I wasn't working on adult stem cells. I wasn't working on embryonic stem cells, but I certainly knew and, you know, and had a lot of good colleagues who knew a lot about this. So I felt I can be a useful person in this debate. And then, of course, you know, the debate goes outside the science itself and becomes much more, you know, about politics, which was no surprise at all, but it was just very interesting to, to do this. But I will say one thing. It, it, I was sort of shocked. I'm coming back to this, how people have different views on reality. So this council was made up of, you know, a distinguished group of people, mostly men, but there are a few women uh, among them. And some of them came from very different traditions, um, you know, but they were academic, you know, they were moral philosophy and things like that, right? And so it's interesting because you don't use a lot of evidence-based things. Uh, some of them were other kinds of historical backgrounds. And, and I was very surprised that, that they didn't use our evidence in their arguments. They used what some authority or other had said. <laughs> and, and I sort of realized, yeah, that's a whole other different way of accepting something as being true. Somebody or other said it, you know. <laughs> so anyway, so that was interesting. It, it is interesting, partly because very frequently science is seen as if it should provide that sort of authority. And indeed, we hear it from governments all, all the time in the COVID pandemic. They say their decisions are led by the science. What they leave out is that there's an awful lot of indecision around that science because there's uncertainty. Well, but let's not over-exaggerate the uncertainty. That old trope, you know, got really <laughs> trotted out, I'm sorry to say, for the climate debate for the longest of times, right? Yeah. Yeah. And just because there's uncertainty around the margins, and similarly for vaccines and for the COVID, and remember for the AIDS epidemic too, there was this uncertainty. And people grabbed onto the uncertainty for all sorts of political reasons, but ignored the very solid basis of evidence that there was. So that's something that I think we have to constantly be watching out for. This whole, yes, there's uncertainty in science, but there's also a lot of heft to a lot of the evidence and to use the uncertainty as an excuse to, you know, to wiggle out. <laughs> you know, you saw it happening with the climate debate to, you know, to, I think, very negative overall effect, you know, back at, back actually back at the time of the Nobel Prize. 
I did an interview with a group of scientists and one of the interviewers, who was a wonderful interviewer, by the way, but raised this whole question of um, climate change. And there was a whole lot of disagreement among colleagues about you know, certain aspects. And this had become very publicized. And this was dominating the um, media, this discussion among the scientists about specifics of the climate change measures. And I was, and I angrily said to this interviewer, you know, that the problem, you know, is, is with the media. They're not reporting the real story, which is we've got this impending crisis, you know, with the, which is climate change. It was all about the back and forth between, you know, some scientists. And to me, that was a disservice that the media was doing to the public because it completely emphasized and then took away, you know, the uncertainty. So it took away the sting of, hey, this is a real crisis we have building. Right. Yes. At some point, you just have to dispense with giving the alternative view because it's just so clear. Well, right. And and to say the story is <laughs> this huge, you know, drama. And sure, there are scientists, you know, back and forthing around the edge of it. But the evidence by then was extremely clear. In your own case, has the fact that you were made a Nobel laureate created barriers in communication? I mean, I remember many times when I've been with you and we've met students around the world, people have come up to me afterwards and said, but she was so approachable as if it was amazing that you could be approachable because you are a Nobel laureate and therefore you somehow exist on some different plane. Does it get in the way? I'm sure it does. Uh, yes, I, I, I suspect there are things that people won't say to me. Um, yeah, luckily I don't know what they are, <laughs> by definition. <laughs> so it, we can it, ignore it's, that. It's, we can... It's, it's, yeah, yeah. So I would say... Th- among scientists, things are very similar because I think we all in the world of science understand, you know, that valuable contributions are made right across the board in science and are not confined to Nobel laureates and, you know, there's an arbitrariness to it. So we all get that. But in the outside world, and and as you said, for younger colleagues, um, you know, who haven't sort of had years in science, yeah, it does look as if there is this this difference and 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 I think they they feel it and and so you know it's it's very nice in some ways to have that kind of interaction because people sort of automatically are assuming something positive about you and and so but but I take it for what it is which is it's almost a branding the Nobel Foundation did a fabulous job they branded this prize so well, when you think about it. Um, and so you just sort of think, well, there's an instant recognition there. Although most people say, did you win the Nobel Peace Prize? So <laughs> that's where the real <laughs> recognition comes. Uh, but I think it's um, really divided into the science colleagues and the not science colleagues that I see. There's, there's a real difference. The ones who think you got the Peace Prize are the ones who are over, who, who are a little overawed. Yes. <laughs> You've moved your own field a very great distance and you've been so invested in it. Do you think about the legacy of your own research, your own contribution to the field once you stop working in it? I do, actually. But I have this sort of 
this, this feeling, I'm so glad I was able to do it. And now I just want to see it going on, but I don't have to be part of it anymore. And in fact, I kind of want to hold back from being part of it because I don't want to kind of hover over it, you know, like a helicopter parent, right? I want to just see it go its own way because it'll develop in all sorts of ways which, you know, I wouldn't have ever imagined. And of course, technologies have changed enormously, so you can just answer questions in completely different ways. But, but uh, yeah, I am, I am actually happy with what I did. And, um, but I don't feel that it, it doesn't have to be done in the same way now at all, and it doesn't have to involve me, but I'm, I'm, I'm cheering it on. The luxury of this stage in your career is that you sort of have this luxury, you know, in my early 70s, I, I feel, yeah, I've had my fun, and I'm going to enjoy other people moving this field ahead, and I love talking about it with people, but I'm not going to try and drive it or compete for my part in it anymore, because I've had plenty of recognition. So I've been you know, very lucky. And I suppose the piece of telomere research that excites people the most who are not in the field is, is its connection with ageing. Do you think that there will be some lasting impact on how we approach ageing or yeah, um, can control ageing? I think more and more it is seen that it's it's something that's just sort of ticking away in the background that in our very long human lives we do have to take account for. And there's lots and lots of aspects to ageing. And I, and I follow this field with lots of interest, although I was dragged kicking and screaming into it because I thought I don't work on ageing. Um, but, but it turns out it is something that you sort of have to take it into account. Sometimes I joke and I say, well, it's sort of like breathing, you know, it's going on all the time. You don't think about it all the time. And, um, and, and, and I am fascinated by what one could start to do with big enough cohorts where, you know, now we get lots and lots of cohorts for what we call precision medicine. And I think we should do, you know, precision health and look at people and build that into these complicated sets of data that allow you to assess how somebody is biologically aging or how their health is doing and so forth. And and the telomere part of it can be integrated in. And before it was always kind of separated out for various statistical reasons. And now you can start to integrate it in because there's much more sophisticated ways of analysing big, big enough and accurate enough data sets. So I love watching all of this, but I don't feel that I'm the expert in it. But I do feel that there's, there's something there. And so that's exciting because, you know, you can sort of see something developing that where it's a part of a complex puzzle. Yes, I mean, the gosh, other part yes. that's just marvellous, though, is understanding the telomeres themselves. You know, we still don't know really dynamically how they are and what they really are. You know, we don't even know what a chromosome is really like, let alone a telomere. So there's just marvellous science down at the level of molecules and cells still. Again and again, taken back to the idea that although something that's written in a textbook, like this is what the chromosome is, you start by thinking that you've got to the end, you haven't at all, you've just opened no, the question. No, but most, model, most scientists know that models are, you know, they're abstractions, right? Yes. As the conversation draws to a close, it veers onto the subject of My Octopus Teacher, an Oscar-winning documentary from 2020 by South African naturalist and filmmaker Craig Foster. While diving in the kelp forests of False Bay near Cape Town, he forms a friendship with a young female octopus. 
Over the course of a year, she slowly invites him into her life. Until you sent me that email, pointing me to that film, my favourite food in the entire world was grilled octopus yes. made on coals, which I had with Uzo after swimming in Greece. I know what you mean. <laughs> I'm, yes, I'm sorry, it's ruined it for me too. <laughs> totally, it's made it off limits completely. It's awful. Yes, yes, but that's what that's what being aware of the real world is is about. You know, I, I must say I had the same feeling to, you know, eating meat these days. You know, I was quite thoughtless about it until I was pointed out certain things about that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I don't know about those very, very tiny little squid, you know, when they're so tiny that I don't think they've developed a brain at that point. <laughs> so I'm I'm holding off on uh, not eating those. There's hope yet, yes. But it, it's it's an, yet another example of um, how a fact can disrupt life. And that's what we've been talking about all the time, whether it's climate change and not flying or going out there and talking to society, which is difficult. Or you choosing a new favourite dish. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Sacrifices in the face of knowledge. Oh, no, no, you'll find something equally delicious. You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of Filt and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Karin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, Magnus Yilier, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. In season three, we welcome guests from all six prize categories. Economic Sciences Laureate Paul Milgram, Literature Laureate Wale Soinka, Peace Laureate Leima Bowie, Chemistry Laureate Joachim Frank, Physics Laureate Didier Coulot, and the guest we just heard, Medicine Laureate Elizabeth Blackburn. You can find previous seasons and conversations on ACAST or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to listen to another scientist with an aesthetic mindset, check out the episode with chemistry laureate and poet Joachim Frank. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.